Well, all you brave souls, good to see you. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have of being together today. There are people obviously choosing to stay home, which is uh, probably a good thing in many ways, especially those who might feel poorly. Uh, We definitely want them to stay home and recoup and be isolated and and try and do all that we can to make sure that the the virus doesn't just keep spreading throughout our society and, and within our city. Father, for those who have it, we pray that you would be with them. I know the the uh, the average person is going to recover quite well from this, uh, but there are going to be those few cases, God, where this uh, turns tragic. And so we pray that you'd be with those who are ill, help them to be recovering well from the virus. And Father, we pray that this would also very quickly play itself out in our world so that we can all get back to the things that we were doing and you can give some peace and sense of routine to the rest of the world. God, we pray that the visitation upon us of this calamity will be something that uh, will be limited in terms of its overall impact. Help the the world's economy and uh, just our sense of well-being to be restored as quickly as possible. We thank you for being with us through the most difficult times in life and that we can continue to be trusting completely in you. Help us to do so. We pray through Christ. Amen. So we are, so we have nothing on the screen. Oh, it's not here. That's interesting. Oh, it's just not, I'll have to turn around then and see what's up there because it's not on my monitor and normally it is. We had some problems, for those of you who were in the second service, we had some problems for the, in the first service with the display, and so things are obviously not all worked out yet. We're in the middle of a study talking about the core, talking about the things uh, in our faith that are most central to what it means for us to be Christians. And so we had started last week and got quite a ways into, actually, a look at the teachings of Jesus. And the ways in which he teaches, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, talked about that. Uh, I had just talked about the parables, um, but we just kind of alluded to it. So I think we'll we'll actually read a couple of of parables, and then we'll do a few more things with the teachings of Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about the resurrection as one of those core ideas about Jesus that needs to be there. So if you want to turn to Matthew 13 uh, in your Bibles, that would be great. And we've already talked about how the kingdom ends up being the real focus of the teachings of Jesus. So that when he travels around, we've seen this in, Mark, or in Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35 as kind of summation passages of the teachings of Christ or the, the ministry of Christ. He went around teaching in their synagogues and then preaching the good news and healing the diseases and the sicknesses of the people. And the good news that he preaches is so often about the kingdom. And then as it turns out, a lot of his teaching is about the kingdom as well. And so when you look at Matthew 13, which in my new Bible, if I can get the pages open, I'm in good shape. There we go. Um, Just for example, in verse 11, like he's telling the parable of the sower. 
But in verse 11, it says he replied after the disciples say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And so you can see that, like he obviously he's trying to say that there's this knowledge about the kingdom of heaven that he's trying to, to teach them. And that does form so much of what it is that Jesus is about in terms of his teaching. Verse 24 when he starts the parable of the tares or the weeds, says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And so here's a parable. We won't take the time to go through and teach everything there is to teach about that parable. But there is a parable there about the kingdom. You will find the same thing if you look at verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is a man, uh, which a man took and planted in his field. Now, we all know about the parable of the mustard seed. We're all pretty used to that. We get that kind of language. Um, and then in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Like we know these parables and we think, well, the parable of the yeast or the parable of the weeds or the parable of the sower or whatever. But we don't automatically think it's the parable about the kingdom. The parable of the weeds or the parable of the sower or the parable about the mustard seed or whatever it is, that's the image that's being used. But all of these parables, and, and Matthew 13 is especially clear about this, all these parables are really about the kingdom. They're not, they're not about weeds. <laughs> they're not about the pearl or something. This is about the kingdom. And so we just need to keep, uh, keep that in mind here, that this is the center of Jesus' teaching. So verse 44, for example, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Uh, verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And so Jesus teaches lots. He teaches lots in parables. And really, these parables are about the kingdom which is the focus of the ministry of Christ, for sure. Now, another thing that Jesus does with his teaching, which is really interesting, is in Matthew 23, if you want to turn there. If I ask you the question about, um, was Jesus at all controversial in his ministry, I think most of us would probably say that he was. There was something about the, the ministry of Christ that was pretty controversial. Now, we think of Jesus as someone who loves us, someone who gave himself on the cross for us, someone who came from heaven uh, to earth to do some wonderful things on our behalf. Like, Jesus was so good to us. He did so many things for us, lots of, of wonderful things. But it'd be inaccurate to say that Jesus didn't have a side to him that had the, like he had the ability to get pretty upset at, at people as well. Now we know instances like in the temple when Jesus goes in and, and finds them changing money and, and obviously what's happening is that there's a great profit being made by some money changers. They're ripping the people off. Uh, the average person has to go there in order to exchange some money so that he can then buy the sacrifices that he is going to make. And so they know that's the case, and the many changers are taking advantage of the people who are coming. And so it's greatly hiked 
rate of exchange, no doubt. And Jesus goes in at an occasion like that, gets really angry. Well, here in Matthew 23, Jesus is uh, got in his sights the religious leaders, which is interesting because like we, we have religious leaders too. And in some ways, I might think of myself almost as a, a kind of religious leader, not that I have some priestly status or something, but I, but I do have a role in the church that is that of a leader. Our elders would be in the same place. And so, in addition to there being an attitude that Jesus has toward these Jewish leaders, there's just a, an attitude toward perhaps institutional religion as well that at least needs to be taken seriously and thought about. So in verse 1 of chapter 23, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So he's, he's at this point talking to the crowds and the disciples about somebody else. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That's interesting. Uh, Ryan Nickel is preaching on the transfiguration this morning, and he specifically mentions Moses and Elijah going and being with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Moses has this wonderful position within the history of Israel, and especially when it comes to the giving of the law. And I think that's a lot of what's being talked about here. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat because they, they long to teach and discuss the law. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so at this point, Jesus' rebuke of the religious leaders, what would you say that's about? What's his point with them? It's all show. It's all show. They do it. Well, whatever they do, they do it so that notice that they do it. Okay. Not done for the glory of God. Yeah, there certainly is. Like, there's some teaching by Jesus in Matthew 6 that we actually looked at. I can't remember when. Which, which is, yeah, and, I, and actually what you just said now, I think, is, is maybe even more pertinent here. But in Matthew chapter 6, you're exactly right. They, they are praying, they are giving, they're caring for others. Uh, what is it? Praying, fasting, and giving. And they do that all for some kind of show. Here, he rebukes them not just because they're doing something for show, but because they're doing what? Yeah, and they, they themselves are not able to carry that burden. So the text specifically says they're hypocrites. That what they say, what they teach, and what they do, it's just not the same thing. Let me move through this, by the way. Are, are the Pharisees and Sadducees still part of the Levites' tribe? No. So this has gone on beyond others. So no, they're no longer from the priestly... Uh, the Pharisees wouldn't have to be, no, nor, nor the Sadducees. Like there, there wasn't necessarily a priestly connection with them. 
So they moved on from having the priests only come from that tribe to now these leaders are come up from where? Yeah, they, well, you know, when with the diaspora at the time of the, when, when there was the exile and Israel went into Babylon and they were there for a long period of time, and then through the intervening years, there is this sense of, um, of dispersion, like the Jews get spread out all over the place. And so there isn't the same kind of focus on the temple cultus, is what they refer to it as. You know, the, the whole uh, service around the temple is not as central as it used to be. And there have to be, in fact, religious leaders at different places. And they come to be called, with time, rabbis. Uh, and so a, a whole class of teachers arises, and this, like, this certainly happens after Ezra and Nehemiah when there is a, a kind of a new emphasis on the law that happens with Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember Ezra standing up and preaching, and the people all stand up and listen to him read the scriptures. And from that time on, there, there starts to develop a, a larger base of teaching, a, a larger structure in terms of those who are teaching. So by the time that Jesus came along, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are two of the groups, along with the scribes, the teachers of the law, who who do have responsibility for teaching and leading, and of course by this also this time also the Sanhedrin has developed, and so there is this group that that supervises things politically. Um, so yeah, it's, like all of that comes out of the diaspora. There's still there are Pharisees and Sadducees right around Jerusalem as well, but then you go to different places and they're present at different parts of the world. So. Um, Jesus is not happy at all with the hypocrisy that he sees among these people. And, you know, it's interesting, too. uh, There is a development within Christian theology right now that is kind of calling into question the typical characterization or caricature that we've often made of Pharisees and Sadducees. And that is, uh, for the last four or five hundred years, people have been saying that the biggest problem with Pharisees and Sadducees is that they're very legalistic very law-devoted. But it wasn't just being devoted to the law. They saw the law as the source of salvation, and the keeping of the law is necessary for salvation. And so we have said, well, they were legalists, big-time legalists, requiring that you keep the law in order to be saved. And in recent uh, years, I would say the last uh, 20 or so, some people have called that into question a bit, maybe with some pretty good reason, saying that it's not as though the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually quite so legalistic. Like that wasn't the problem, for example, that Jesus was on them about. He does get on them about tithing, mint, dill, and cumin, and not caring about the weighter matters of the law. So maybe they have made some of the intricate details of the law the focus of their life without that being... um, Yeah, like they've made that the focus of the law and haven't given enough place to compassion and care for others, for example. And here, Jesus specifically gets them on them about hypocrisy, but maybe not so much the idea that they were strict legalists in terms of why uh, salvation comes to you. So you have to, be, you have to keep the law in order to be saved. So that, that's a debate that goes on. At the very least, though, we know that Jesus here is really on them about this whole hypocrisy thing. Then he says in verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. And here we go, Steve, with some of your comments there. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect 
in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And you do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it, this last bit here, I think, is especially significant in terms of the way that these people wanted to be viewed and Jesus' criticism of them. Just this idea that the whole notion of who is first and who is last, as we all know, is completely reversed in the mind of Christ. That it's the servant of all who is supposed to be the one most lauded. And those who think they are something need to recognize that the moment they start thinking they're something, they've just reduced their status. Um, I, I've, I've had the privilege of working with several different elderships now. One of the things that has driven me crazy at different points is when I have seen elders try and uh, state their authority as elders, be so concerned about their position as elders, almost as if they loved the idea of being an elder. In fact, I've heard of people being disappointed when they weren't appointed an elder. And not disappointed because they wanted to serve and didn't have an opportunity to serve in that way, but because they didn't get to achieve that status in the church. People didn't appoint them there. And as soon as I hear about that, I think, yeah, yeah, I think it may be as best that you were not appointed. <laughs> because for one, to long for that, but long for it for the wrong reasons, is a mistake. And we do need to have... Elders and ministers, for that matter, you know, the word minister simply means to be a servant. And so we need to make sure that those who are in positions of leadership, and I, it's not wrong for a person to be in a position of leadership, but those in a position of leadership need to recognize that they are servants of all and not in some position of status that uh, they hold in the church. And he's certainly on them about that. Well, we could go on. There, there are a lot of other things here. I, I don't want to spend any more time on just the fact that Jesus has great criticism for those who lead in ways which are not responsible. Uh, and he, he's, he's brutal in the way that he, uh, the way that he condemns, them, condemns them. And so you see in verse 13, in verse 16, in verse 23, in verse 25, in verse 27, in verse 29, in verse 33... Um, really harsh language where he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides, you blind fools. Woe to you, <clears throat> teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, uh, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You are blind. Uh, at one point he calls them, where's this? Verse 33, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Pretty harsh language on the part of Jesus. And then in verse 20, uh, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord, uh, which is all about judgment. And so there is very harsh language offered by Jesus there about these people who are not taking their faith uh, seriously and really taking it in a direction that it doesn't need to go. Any comments or any more questions about, about that part of things? Yeah. I was struck by this... Uh... He's mad, isn't he? He is one angry dude. It's like, and he lets it all out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a few times, you know, oftentimes he has compassion because there's not a shepherd and he heals, he gets tired, and just, he just keeps going. But this really, I guess just this time around, it really hit me hard. Just how angry he is. Yeah. And, and how Yeah. Yeah. No, I I would agree. You know, as a as one who gets up and sp- speaks in front of people and helps lead a church and that kind of thing, um, I do try and take all of these words, of course, seriously. Um, and one of the things that that is interesting in our world is just how easy it is for uh, people to rise to a position of power, especially given media. Um, you know, and there's a massive difference between someone like a Billy Graham, who from what I can tell was a fine man. And then those who sometimes put themselves in positions of power in churches and in front of media all the time are just longing for attention and do everything they can to try and gain attention and all of that. That's a completely different attitude and perspective. So that we have to have leaders. Somebody has to lead. Somebody has to speak. Um, but but one has to have a heart that is governed by the Spirit and controlled by humility at the same time that one is willing to step into a position of leadership. Mark? Verse 10, uh, when he says, only one master, uh, a teacher, Christ, at this point, would they know that he was speaking about himself? That's, that's a great question. Um, we know that some of them did, like, for example, Nicodemus. We also, but I'm guessing that they probably, for the most part, had already rejected him out of hand, like they'd already tried to kill him, uh, very clearly reject him already. Uh, why are you asking the question? Well, he's, he's hammering away at the people that are the leaders, are the teachers. Right. And then he says, by the way, you've got to listen to me. Right. Right. And his life exemplifies what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I like I was just reading I was reading in the Gospel of Mark the last few days, and uh, and Jesus one of the things that comes out in, in Mark's gospel is that Jesus teaches with such authority. Like that gospel starts with numerous claims about his Messiahship. 
the fact that he has come to fulfill you know, the destiny of Israel, and he, he's definitely Messiah. I mean, all the Gospels do this, point to Jesus as Messiah. And he, he's pretty clear about who he is as Messiah. But the people themselves recognize a contrast between the teachings of these folks and the teachings of Jesus. And they say, he teaches as one with authority. We've never heard anybody like this before. So I think you're right. There is a sense, of course, when, as that Jesus is saying, I'm... I'm the one who needs to actually be doing the teaching, not you. But his authority, of course, <laughs> is actually backed up. I mean, he, he, that's who he really is. Uh, their authority is, I'm not going to say that it's just fake or false or something like that. It's not. They do have, they have some abilities in the law and, and, and have a place. Uh, but for them to try and take a place, which they keep trying to take as being religiously superior to everyone else, Jesus really condemns that. That's what I was trying to understand about when God appointed the Levites, that tribe, as the priests. Yeah. That's what I was trying to understand about the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. How did they get their position? Yeah. Because it doesn't seem to be godly. Right. Well, it's not, like, it's not as though the law spells out a position for Pharisees or something. These are... Uh, just put themselves in this position. Yeah, well... I don't know, put themselves in this position. I mean, it's, it's an evolving thing that as they became more and more concerned with uh, being very strict about the written law, which they had to be because of the exile. Like when they came back from exile, all of a sudden there was a, a renewed vigor, a real attentiveness to the law. They became very, very careful about the law and keeping it when they came back from exile. But there still would have been Levites. Oh, there was. Yeah, there was still, yeah, there was still a priesthood, yeah. Yep, I would agree. And 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 those pr- follow what was outlined for them in terms of the priests. Yeah. Well, part part of it again was like I was talking about the diaspora, like the priests are all centered around Palestine and around the temple. But you've got Jews spread out all over the Mediterranean world. There were a hundred thousand Jews in the city of Alexandria by about two hundred BC. So bef- for two hundred years before Jesus, there's a hundred thousand Jews down in Egypt, just in Alexandria alone. And that's one of the reasons they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek was because they couldn't, they couldn't read their own scriptures. They were losing the language of Hebrew, and, but Greek was everywhere. And so there are Jews all over the Mediterranean world, and you've got synagogues everywhere all over the Mediterranean world. And there were rules about how many Jews you had to have in order to have a synagogue, but then once you have a synagogue, you're going to have to have somebody lead that. So that's one of the things that happens, that these leaders sprang up because of the synagogue. But, and then because of this attention to the law, like the priests were uh, concerned with the temple worship and the sacrifices and carrying out the law, but someone needed to interpret the law for them. And so a, a class of people rises up who become the scholars and the scribes, the Pharisees who are concerned with the things of the law. Go ahead. But then if you look at verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, you are all brothers. You are not to call anyone on earth father, for you have one father who is in heaven, nor are you to call instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. And I, I really wonder about 11. It says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And I wonder if Jesus is not saying to them, I am the greatest among you, and I'm going to be your servant. Like, who does that sentence point to? Yeah. Points to him? I would absolutely agree. Yeah, I would agree. 
guys don't get it. Like, you think that whatever their expectation of God coming to save them is going to be, it's, that's not it. I've been trying to tell you about the kingdom. And so when he calls us out, I mean, father and instructor and rabbi, those all strike me as these positions. That, you know, it's like, give me that title next. Let me add that, you know, extra few letters after my name, uh, you know, to get that position in front of people and have them admire me. And I think Jesus is just calling that out. I mean, in very long form here through the whole chapter. Yeah. But I wonder if it's more of an ethos of uh, this is what the kingdom of heaven is really like and less necessarily him saying, watch what I do in this specific case. You're just saying that the average Christian should be thinking of him or herself first as a servant and recognizing that that's what God really wants for his kingdom people is to be those kind of servants. Yeah. And is Jesus saying those words specifically to reference himself? And I think yeah. it makes sense, but it's more general. I think he's saying this is what the kingdom is like, and Jesus clearly embodies all of the right. principles of the kingdom to their, you know, kind of fullest extent. We take our views from him, but I don't think Jesus is necessarily being like, hey, you shouldn't call yourself that, but he instead, not that. Yeah. Yeah. But it comes right after him saying, you have one instructor, the Messiah. The Messiah, yeah. I don't yeah I don't know that I don't know that it has to be exclusive here in terms of it's one or the other I, you know Jesus is doing both with the same thing you know it's interesting I'm listening to Michael talk you know my, Michael has an MDiv which is a master of divinity he's got uh, a first degree and and then a, at least you know a master's degree which is a full professional degree I've got a few degrees as well and it would be easy for us I think to Think of ourselves in that way. Take this position of authority and say, well, I have a doctorate, and so you guys really need to listen to me. And, you know, this puts me in a position over all of you in terms of biblical knowledge. And, you know, I mean, like, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be beyond us because we're human to have that kind of, that we never would. Like, that, that's just nothing that we should ever accentuate and try and put ourselves in a position uh, of, of authority because of those things. Like if the church chooses someone to serve and says, please, you know, please serve, be a leader in some way, like, a, like the church choosing elders, well, there's nothing, of course, wrong with that. Like the church has to have leaders, and I'm glad that we do. But there is a massive responsibility on the part of those leaders to be the kind of humble, respectful, um, subservient, uh, not self-promoting kinds of people that we need to be. And the moment that that changes and, and we become something other than that, that is a massive problem. <laughs> One that brings down from Jesus intense language about the heart that needs to, to be there as opposed to what they obviously possessed. Yeah. That's exactly one of the things that Jesus called out here. disputing that what they're saying is wrong. He's calling out the, the discrepancy between like not having a pastoral heart right. inside the teaching and not being willing to actually know God instead of just telling people how they ought to know God. Right? Like, it seems like there's a bit of that Going on. Well, and I would say not just a bit. There seems to be a massive amount of that going on. And, and that's why Jesus condemns it in Matthew 6, like Steve was pointing out before. And that's why he po- uh, condemns the same thing here. Ronnie? Yeah. 
righteousness surpasses the teachers of the law. Oh, no. Uh, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So, as much as we want to say, well, they were hypocritical, or Jesus said they were hypocritical, but they were. At the same time, he says your righteousness has to surpass theirs. So, right. It's kind of a paradox in that, okay, they were observant to the law, but they were observant to the law to the Right. And yet they're yeah. I, I appreciate that. One of the things that we saw when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount two weeks ago was, um, or was it just last week? I can't remember. I just know I don't have COVID-19. Um, we, we, um, what, we, what we saw, though, was the constant emphasis on the heart. And that's where the, the righteousness begins to surpass. It's not that, well... Uh, the Pharisee reads 10 verses, I'm going to make sure I read 15. That's not the point, obviously. It's a question of where are our hearts at when it comes to serving the Lord. And so often, unfortunately, the hearts of these leaders were devoted more toward their own status uh, and achievement rather than toward really accomplishing what God wants them to accomplish. And, And as I said, in terms of our own leadership here, may it never be. You know, may we, like we should never be blowing our own horns and taking a position of status and trying to lift ourselves up, uh, but instead to be the kind of servants and teachers, leaders that Christ wants us to be, allowing him to be the head teacher, of course. Well, uh, time has gotten away from me here. Let me, let me go ahead and just say a couple more things about his teaching, and then that'll give us a chance to start fresh next week with the new subject. Um, one is that there's this apocalyptic and looking toward the end in Matthew 24 and 25. Lots of people just don't know what to do with Matthew 24 and 25, and and I'm not going to sort all of that out for us today. But I will tell you that Jesus here launches into a style of teaching which is very similar in some ways to the book of Revelation or something that you might find in Ezekiel or the second half of Daniel or something like that. Uh, the, The word apocalyptic means revelation. Apocalypsis means to reveal. And what was happening was that there, there were teachings from God that were coming to us revealed in a certain style of literature. And so the book of Revelation is the best example and really the earliest full example of that style of literature called apocalyptic. And it's filled with all kinds of images. Of course, I'm sure you've read the book of Revelation and seen all those kinds of images. If you don't understand that this is written in a certain style you're going to miss the whole point of the book of Revelation. And in fact, if you try and take it literally, you will, I wanted to say, you will literally mess it up. <laughs> like, you'll, like the book of Revelation, in, in my opinion, and I, I, think this is a, I think this is a well-grounded opinion, the book of Revelation is not intended in any way to be taken literally. So I'm not, I'm not looking for there at some point to be coming down out of the sky a beast covered with wings or eyes or something like that. Uh, instead, I think that that the style of teaching is such that there's a, actually a fairly simple message coming out of the book of Revelation, something like, and this really fits for us today, I think, 
you know, don't worry. God is taking care of things. Be faithful and he's going to continue to watch over you and bless you if you're faithful to him until the end. And this was a message that would speak powerfully to a, a church that was under persecution where martyrs were, were uh, giving their lives to Christ on a regular basis. Uh, if the book was written in about the middle 90s, which is probably the case, and if it was written from Asia Minor, which is most likely the case, then there was a persecution that was going on at the hands of the Roman government. And so the, the writer is responding to that persecution by writing a book filled with symbols meant to comfort and to give peace to the people. Jesus is doing the same kind of thing in Matthew 24 and 25. There are all kinds of of images, fantastic images, just in those two chapters. And and you read it and think, what in the world is all this talking about? You know, the the moon's going to be turned to blood? Like, how, how can that be? Well, I'm not actually expecting the moon to actually be turned to blood. I don't think we're going to have a big bloody or blood-filled moon. Um, He's using fantastic symbols to illustrate that there is something cataclysmic that is going to come upon the people. Now, most of Matthew 24, I think, is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. The Romans came and destroyed the city. The blood ran in the streets. It was a horrible, horrible time. That's why he talks about fleeing and don't turn back and those kind of things because this destruction is coming upon them. Then he combines that and I think moves into a look toward the end when he ultimately is going to come. But all of that is apocalyptic and and looking toward the end. Uh, And so Jesus teaches in that style along with these other things that that he's been doing. And then finally, uh, for this morning, if you look at the Gospel of John, you'll find that the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John is a bit different than it is in the other three Gospels, what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Normally in the Gospel of John, when Jesus teaches, he teaches in discourses. And so he has conversations, long conversations with people, like a long conversation with Nicodemus, for example, or a long conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He has a long conversation with the disciples beginning in chapter 13 that goes through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So if you look in your Bibles, if you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, you'll find in John chapter 13 through 17, it's almost all red. Because Jesus is talking specifically to a group of people at that point in the midst of a discourse, a lot of that having to do with the Last Supper. So it's just different in the Gospel of John. You won't find teaching to a crowd like the Sermon on the Mount in John. Instead, you'll find Jesus sitting down with the woman at the well and having a conversation with her, and that's the way that he teaches. It's just interesting how the, the Gospels portray Jesus' teaching in different ways. Steve? Just a quick question. So here's Jesus at the well with the woman that says that his disciples left him to go get food. Yeah. Who recorded his conversation with the woman at the well? Well, the Holy Spirit's quite capable of that. Thanks for putting me on the spot with that one, Steve. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. We'll talk about that one maybe next week.